Welcome to Lamarck.Leadership Series. I'm incredibly excited to host uh, James Conway. He's the Chief Marketing and Chief Merchandising Officer for City Furniture. I also have uh, Brian Chetsky, Founder and CEO of Lamarck, and me, myself, and I, Fahim Siddiqui, Chief Strategy Officer at Lamarck. Um, James, thank you for joining. Really excited to host you. How are you? You're welcome. Doing well and excited to be on. Yeah, good to have you. Um, you know, James, when, when Brian and I were, were uh, creating our list of guests, you've, you've been on top for a while. We wanted to make sure that we settle City in uh, before we kick off an official podcast. So we're excited to do this. Uh, you wear like 15, 20 different hats um, in the business from merchandising to marketing. Um, I would love to just, for, for the people that, that may not know you, I'd love for a quick intro about your background and how, how you got to where you are and, and would love to just hear from, from you and, and your experience. Sure. So to, to really start with some of the context, I think it's helpful to understand what, uh, what City Furniture is and um, what role we play in the marketplace. We are currently this year uh, the nation's 21st largest uh, furniture retailer, and uh, we, we're doing about $550 million in sales this year. Uh, I started 12 years ago when we did $238 million in sales. So the company has doubled um, in size by that point and, and we're growing really quickly. So one of the reasons that I have uh, multiple hats is because we're a company that was much smaller and is growing. And as we grow, um, we just, uh, you know, when it was a smaller company, it's easier to have more disciplines under and, and you get to start and learn and um, learn from the bottom up. So when I started with City Furniture, um, I came out of the University of Florida. Um, I had my bachelor's in finance and my master's in international business. So I had met with the, uh, the owner of the company, Keith Koenig, he's also a Gator. And um, he said, you know, I think, uh, I think you'd be great in supply chain because you have a background in international business. So I came on and joined the company really in the middle of the Great Recession. So the company at the time was transitioning from you know, a standard furniture retailer um, to an organization that was embracing the principles of Toyota and the lean management system. So uh, the company really kind of um, took place in the Great Recession, went from 365 million in sales to 230 in two years. And, uh, and then that's where I kind of joined. So I got to watch the company uh, grow from the ground up. And uh, with that, I started out on the supply chain side. Uh, owner Keith, he uh, took me over to Asia the very first year I was there, and it took me four times that year. And the next time he took me another four times, and uh, he just kept taking me over there to learn the business. So I was fortunate enough to learn uh, from the ground up of what does our supply chain look like so that I can think through on the product side of, um, uh, of learning how to be a good merchant. So um, that's kind of where I started, and then things progressed from there um, into a merchandising role to lead uh, our merchandising business unit. And um, as that has expanded, um, I've recently taken on marketing over the last three years. And that's where I sit today, kind of at the confluence of mer merchandising and marketing. And I'm um, delighted to do so. Nice, awesome. So it's been, I mean, needless to say, a fruitful 12 years, right, at City in terms of how you've learned the business from the ground up. Um, I wanna take a moment and, and just kind of reflect on how, how much has the business changed in the last 12 years? just even agnostic of, of the, the, the 2X growth. Talk to us a little bit about the foundation that was built when you came in and perhaps from your frame of reference, how a lot of things perhaps have changed. Yeah, I think uh, one of the interesting things is we had no one, there was no e-commerce when I joined. So 12 years ago, there was no e-commerce portion at all. 
it wasn't in for, until the first four years uh, that had gone by, so in 2013, where we hired one person to do e-commerce because we figured, oh, that's all it's going to take. We just get one guy in and he's just, he's going to turn a website on and it's going to work. So yeah. we went from uh, uh, learning about that to realizing now, you know, we have a team of 40 on our e-commerce uh, division, including developers, and we outsource a, a ton of work as well. So that's been the biggest transformation is this shift from, you know, us being just a furniture store that's going to say, hey, everybody's going to come in. They're going to buy everything in the store. They're not going to transact online. We don't need to have an important website to realizing that website is the front door to the store. And uh, it really has to be where we have to uh, put a much more substantial investment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the team has obviously grown substantially, even in the last like two to three years. Uh, I remember when you and I first met and we talked a little bit about program managing this whole thing. Um, talk to us a little bit about human capital management, um, especially like in the midst of COVID, uh, how you've gone from managing it in-house to, to remote. Sure. So um, a little bit about our strategy, um, and this comes all the way from our owner, he's an entrepreneur, and he's always believed that, let me try to um, uh, hire for attitude and train for skill. So, so we use that application and we tend to try to grab really young, aggressive, smart folks, and we believe that we can teach them anything. So if you come into our organization, you will see that across the board, almost everybody lacks substantial experience. But we don't think that's a bad thing, because if you have the right attitude, we can figure out what's the right seat on the bus to leverage your skills. A lot of folks at City Furniture, uh, we move them around quite a bit, and we want to make sure that they have access to a lot of different areas of the company so that we don't become such a, a silo or have a, a lot of towers of knowledge that can't communicate cross-functionally well. So um, our strategy has always been to try to make sure that folks can uh, work in multi-disciplines uh, across what we're doing. And uh, then we can deploy them differently and they have more uh, strengths to add city to city furniture. So when we've got into COVID, you know, uh, to be honest, there were some furloughs. Uh, we didn't know what was gonna happen. The government forced us to close a lot of our stores. And um, the and, uh, quick reaction was, hey, you want to hold on to as much cash as possible, and if you can't have sales associates show up to stores because they're closed, what are you going to do? And um, we quickly found out that the folks who had uh, been cross-trained were much more valuable to the company. So a lot of the associates were, were thankfully, our businesses recovered robust, robustly, uh, led by a demand for home goods um, that has happened as folks are staying more home. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. but. Uh, from a human capital management standpoint, uh, because we cross-trained a lot of folks in different disciplines, they have been more, uh, they've had more to offer back to city furniture. So some of our folks who um, originally joined us in the supply chain and grew on to be merchants rejoined the supply chain team, and they've added more value there than, than they have in the past. And we've had folks that um, were, you know, I've had folks that were runners in our photo studio who are now doing uh, photography work. And um, so we've looked at this better to say, if we can really train people, uh, cross-train well, and have really good job instruction, we can take a smart person and apply them into a different task. And that allows us to concentrate resources and skate to the puck um, uh, and, uh, and really be a more um, nimble organization. I love that. You know, it's funny, when we first started partnering together and working together, the first thing you did was you showed us your one-page um, vision, core values, 
it almost felt like that that's the DNA of the company. That's who you guys are. That's what you believe in. That's what the business is built on. And too often in today's transactional world, we hear about building for today and tomorrow. But the moment we met, you said, we're building for the next 50 years. Where does that come from? Like, how was that? Talk to us a little bit about Sure, I think that goes back to the ownership. We're a privately held company and uh, there's no intentions to sell or go get money from the outside. So um, the original owner, Keith, um, still controls the business and his son, Andrew, is our president. And um, it, it really is, uh, the business is a family business and it's something that they want to continue to grow. The, the goal is to uh, enrich people's lives and make the world a better place. That's really the mission at City Furniture. And in order to achieve that, um, mission, you have to have a, a broader point of view than just the next couple of years. Um, we have a, a, a green promise by 2040 to try to uh, have all our operations to be carbon neutral. Um, that doesn't happen by executing a two-year plan or getting to this numbers or this quarter's uh, uh, profit numbers. That, that depends on having a different vision of what our role in, uh, in the global marketplace is. Um, so I think that really comes from them and it comes from the vision of saying, hey, this is, this is what we want to do with um, uh, the business and that we have an obligation to contribute more as a corporate citizen than to take. And, and, and if you really want to do that, if you want to enrich people's lives, if you want to grow the economy, if you want to do um, the right thing in a global marketplace and, and get all jobs going and maximizing that across a, a full global marketplace, you have to have that vision. Otherwise, um, you know, things like COVID will shake you up too much because you don't have that long-term vision of, of where you need to do uh, to be successful. So you might do a lot of short-term measures to help you right now, but then you wake up out of this and you can't compete with Amazon later. So um, that's really kind of what shapes that for us. And it's coming from good leadership at the top. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's the epitome of like um, enterprise level, like systems building and thinking. Um, there's a book that I'm reading and they talk a lot about uh, you know, winners and losers both have goals. They both want to win, right? But winners have a system that that allows them to win. And they always say, like, instead of trying to work up to your goal, fall into your system um, uh, to help you win. And that really resonates with me. And I feel like it's sort of the, um, you know, at, at the core of who you guys are, it kind of sits, it sits there. Yeah. Um, let's, um, I, I would, Brian, any thoughts on that front? I know we, we've been jamming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think from our perspective, obviously, uh, you know, in almost 12 years, uh, we, we, we started the markets at the same time. I think James started uh, his, his journey. So that's pretty cool. And um, the agency I worked at prior to starting the market had nothing digital or e-commerce either. So uh, different world to think about where we are now. And, you know, we had things like MySpace and Lycos back then uh, mm -hmm. and Ask Jeeves not just Google uh, thing, but um, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it's vision planning for now and the future and having a goal by 2040 just tells you the discipline that, that the city and, and the team have to say, this is a goal 20 years from now that we are going to commit to. It's that big of a goal. It takes 20 years and we're going to incrementally drive that goal while still managing profitability, dealing with a, a pandemic, you know, working through stores opening and closing. We're not going to abandon that goal just because, of the time now we're committed to it and that takes dedication which i think to have that kind of vision that far out really requires discipline and commitment and i think that's amazing um yeah. and, you know i think even as our business we plan out what it looked like two years five years i don't know that we're planning 20 years and probably should be um so i think that's 
to really maybe take away the same share today. And it's just having that vision. I'm sure that plan will change many, many times between now and 20 years from now, but it's a course that you're committed to, which I think is a, is a really special thing. So yeah. that's inspiring to me. I think we have to plan what we want to be by 2040 after this call. So. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, I think the perhaps my takeaway was uh, e-commerce wasn't a thing pre-2013. <laughs> <Yeah>. Outside <laughs> of 2040, like how crazy is it? You know, I feel like the there's a, you know, people are saying the same thing. And James, I don't know if you agree with this, but like everyone is saying, well, COVID is a change agent. COVID is a change agent. I'm saying it's not a change agent. It's an accelerant, right? Things that me, you, Brian, and the rest of the rest of us were supposed to see in the next 10 years, we're seeing in 10 weeks, right? Uh, I mean, just look at e-commerce penetration as a function of retail. Um, it's so vividly clear that uh, this was stuff that we were going to see in the future anyway. Um, it's just a matter of, um, it's just an accelerant. Um, speaking I of COVID, I, I would love to just hear your thoughts, like how when COVID hit and the shutdown started happening and you guys got the mandate that, hey, majority of your business is still retail, right? Um, in terms of just top line impact, you got to shut that down. It's not a non-essential business. What was going through your mind? How did you, what was the, the reaction to that? Um, would love to just kind of tap into your headspace there. Sure. Well, I, you know, the first one was just absolute panic. I mean, nobody has a plan for this and nobody, none of us at least, you know, most of our management team uh, is like me. We're in our mid thirties. And then we have, uh, you know, the company owner, uh, who, you know, they're boomers they're in their late sixties. So they have far more experience and far more um, reps going through crises. So this was really the first crisis that, that um, I had to deal with uh, at the helm, so to speak. And uh, the first thing is, you know, uh, I'm just, what are we gonna do? And what is this gonna mean to everybody's jobs? And, and it was just that shell shock. But when, when you let that go through, then you can start to break down and say, what is the problem? Well, the problem is I can't open my stores. And all right, that's all that revenue. Well, what can I do? You know, can, can we get on the phones in the stores? Yeah, there's still demand for that. Okay, can we get online? Uh, oh, look, we, our traffic's way up online. How do we leverage that? How do we get these people talking to other folks? How do we get creative with trying to rebuild um, our sales revenue? So, um, you know, of course, the doom and gloom right from the start, but um, we really kind of tried to challenge the narrative that we just have to stick our head in the sand. We did not pull back on ads. A lot of our folks did that. They said, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna cut ad spending immediately. We sure went back and renegotiated because it's a supply and demand change in the market. But we said um, we had the right, um, you know, once we checked to say, do we have enough cash to survive this thing? Which thankfully we're, we're strong financial planners. And I would advise anybody who has a retail business to look at what uh, some of um, what, you know, our ownership that does, which is to own as much real estate as you can. Um, in South Florida, we're used to hurricanes. So we, we're used to these little obliterations. Like two years ago, we had Labor Day wiped out because of a hurricane and, all right, well, that just took away $10 million in revenue. So we're used to these little things, but a prolonged shutdown uh, that affects all markets for us was, was a brand new challenge. So um, we just slowly started to chip away at some of the narratives there. We, you know, um, uh, and, and we invested more in the web and we invested more and said, okay, well, how long can we last? We knew how long we could last um, at a reduced revenue uh, level. And then we started to see that each week we were beating our forecast of what we thought we would do. Um, and, and we just slowly climbed our way up. So it took a very surgical approach, um, you know, almost like debugging it at the lines of code, right? To really understand at the core, like what, what are the problems that we can't control, ignore those, and then really focus on 
uh, variables that you can directly control. Um, you know, this brings an interesting point. Um, retail is such a critical part of your business. And with the emergence of e-commerce, just as a trend, uh, agnostic to COVID, and now certainly with COVID, how are you thinking about the future of retail? What, what is the future of retail? Well, so it's interesting. We, um, our showrooms, what we would call, uh, we have our generation three, which is our, our newest showroom concept. And believe it or not, that showroom concept is 120,000 square feet. It is more than twice the size of our average showroom. So while everybody else is saying retail is dead, we were saying retail is boring. We have to make it more interesting. We have to make it more compelling for the customer to come in and see what the reason that people are opting to shop online rather than in store is because it's easier, it's more convenient. And the online options have, have everything you need to be able to do the same thing uh, that you would in a showroom. So how do we increase that? So we added wine bars into um, our showroom. We nice. have um, uh, coffee bars in there. We serve tapas and appetizers and um, we made it a destination. If you're gonna walk uh, into a showroom that's 20, 30,000 feet, uh, you might run, you know, might not find a sofa you like, but if you go to a showroom that's 120,000 feet, well, that's now worth my time. So the customer, the psychology of the customers, when I go there, I'm gonna have a great experience. I'm gonna be taken care of. I'm gonna have good hospitality, yet these guys are selling beds from $99 all the way up to top of the line furniture. So I have a huge range and assortment and I'm willing to drive further. So we noticed that when we made the bigger bet on prime real estate in, in a, a substantial uh, investment in a physical footprint coupled with our digital investment, we actually can drive more traffic from further out and we needed less showrooms. So the problem wasn't that, you know, people don't want to shop in retail. It's that we just really needed to up our game. And I think that was the big takeaway pre-COVID that we had. So um, that doesn't really change when COVID happens. It's just kind of amplified, like you said earlier. You know, under stress, people become just the, the strong aspects of their personality become stronger. It's just like what you said with COVID. It, it just accelerated the trends that were already going. So much more people going online uh, and shopping. So we realized that our online presence, although it had improved drastically, still was not as strong as our in-store experience. So we're going to be investing in technologies like 3D and uh, augmented reality and trying to make sure that we can offer that same exact experience uh, that you get in the showroom online and just make it easy for the customer wherever they want to go. Yeah, so suffice to say, but experiential retail is boring, or excuse me, transactional retail is boring, um, probably dead in the future, but experiential retail is the now um, and, and will help propel retail forward. Yeah, we believe it's table stakes and, and uh, you know, we think that the optimal model is a hybrid model, and I, I bet a lot of these pure play guys will end up uh, opening stores if they really want to maximize their throughput and and um, and having or at least some key you know regional places that you can come in and in some uh, uh, you know hyper dense markets that make sense. But we really believe that the customer is going to want both. They're not uh, customers still like to shop. They still want to go places. There's a social interaction and shopping and selecting furniture and and going through to do that. And there's a big comfort feel with furniture as well. So we don't believe that it's going to go away, but hey, I could certainly see a world where um, our, you know, our, our online store is fastly growing to be our number one store. It's not there yet, but uh, it, it eventually will be. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to see our online business eclipse 10% of our total sales and maybe 15% one day. Yeah. Is it safe to 
I was going to yeah, jump no, quick. I think you hit a couple yeah. of nails on the head. I think, you know, with, with the experiential component, it's, it comes down, and James, you just said people like to shop. I think people like to shop when it's enjoyable, right? And so I think we're all on the same, on the same horn. It's, it's do you enjoy that process? And I think COVID really is going to heighten that. Like things that aren't enjoyable, you don't need to do it. You can get it online. You know, things that you can, you know, in certain experiences, things that you know what you like, you know the brands, it's easy to order it. Do you really need to go to the mall? Do you really enjoy that store? Is that experience an experience or is it shopping because you need something? And I think furniture is something you want to know how it feels, how it touches, what it looks like in a room. Digital will get closer to that, but there's still something about sitting on that couch or sitting on that mattress or laying on that mattress. I think as long as that's an enjoyable experience and something you do with your spouse or whatever it is and you go out for the day, it's an exciting moment. You're redecorating your home or you're moving to a new home. It's a, it's a good feeling. It should be a fun positive experience just like when you're test driving a new car it should be enjoyable and if it's not enjoyable people aren't going to have patience for it anymore i think that's yeah and i think i think that's a great note and it kind of has two thoughts in my head one of them is about if you want to talk about industries that have a poor shopping experience look at the auto industry that's one that's ripe for disruption no one enjoys buying a car it's the worst experience ever and you should yeah but um but there's a ton of cars sold every day so, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see what's the dealership of the future look like where they really make that fun again and really make that a, a nice, interesting point. Otherwise, hey, why does it matter if I, if I just order that car off online, same exact quality, same Ford Explorer that I'm going to get there as I'm going to get in the dealership. So you look at guys like that, those are the ones that I think really have an extreme incentive to really redo and rewrite uh, what their customer experience is. But uh, for us, we need to, to be cognizant of what is our role in the marketplace and, and what should we be doing? Because we can be doing far more to help our customers, particularly on the digital side. And I just sometimes think of this as, you know, hey, if you're taking a train to the West Coast from Florida, you're gonna stop somewhere along the way, maybe in Austin and, and see Fahim on your way over to the West Coast, right? Well, that's the internet for us. It's a journey point on the way into the store for most people. Now, yeah, some people might go directly there and they're going to transact there. But uh, if we have a more compelling reason to go online, we're going to have a, uh, be more effective at getting them into the store. So uh, just to give you an example, Monsi, I think, is a great company that has done really well with um, meeting the customer where they are in their home, looking at pictures, doing 3D renderings, and then showing them what that furniture can look like in their space. We have um, some plans to try to aggressively go after that type of, of uh, customer journey so that we can add even more value to them on the digital side so that when they do come in, they're more informed, they know what they want, they had more value add service that's differentiated from our competition. I love that. Um, I, you know, I think this idea of experiential retail is so critical. How, how does that transfer over, that, that level of obsessiveness uh, for the customer experience transfer over to the dot-com? How do you create that customer journey on the dot-com as well, James? So uh, this has been the, the most difficult thing so far in the last couple of years for me. And um, because it's been really hard for me to explain to our team what we do that's different, which brings up a larger problem. So the great sin of city furniture is, we, we kind of uh, laugh about this, but we say we're, we try to be all things to all people. We're all really competitive and we want to win everywhere. So we try to be the best at everything. We try to have the best assortment. We try to have the best lower end assortment, the best upper end assortment, the most choices 
you know, the quickest delivery. If you try to win everywhere, you don't really become known for anything. And, and that's some of our struggle in there. So then when I have folks who come into the company, they're like, oh, you guys are just overall good at everything. You just, you know, we're, we're pretty good at everything. Well, that doesn't tell them what to market. It also doesn't tell them how, what they really should speak from a messaging standpoint and how they can differentiate. And then if they don't understand that well and what we really do different in the marketplace, how can they make that come to life on the dot-com space? So that's where I think that some of the benefits of, of my, uh, the start of my career in merchandising and supply chain, because I know what our value props are. I know what we really do different and what really moves the needle for us. But articulating that to the team has been more difficult. Now, I think over the last couple of years, as we spent more time, we try to take our um, e-commerce or digital marketing folks and our marketing team, we take them to the showroom. I explain to them what we're doing. Here's why. You know, what's, what's the thought process behind why we brought in this product line and, and how is it different? So we have a, 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 just a, a brief example. Um, Restoration Hardware um, is a, a big leading furniture retailer, of course, and you guys know Pottery Barn and West Elm and Crate and Barrel and some of those great, great brands. Well, what City Furniture does is what a lot of people try to do. We're, we're the fast fashion interpretation of, of what those brands are doing. So we take what they're doing and then we bring the, uh, uh, we put our spin on it and then we bring it down um, to a popular price that customers can afford. And we go after and carry all of those different styles. So if you walk into our showroom and it's 120,000 feet, it has 11 different areas. Those 11 different areas kind of mimic some of those national design trends. So uh, Z Gallery's got a lot of glam and mirrors. Well, we're going to have a section that has a lot of glam and mirrors, and it's far more affordable. And, um, and you might say, well, how do we do that? Well, we do that because we design and develop it in-house directly with factories. There's no middleman. It's just the retailer, us, and the factory over there. So by explaining that, that whole sentence and that, that statement to our marketing team, well, then they know how to start to organize the website. Well, maybe we should show the customers what they see in the store. When they come in, they see that whole area of glam furniture, that, that whole area that looks mid-century and has notes of uh, West Elm. So if we can convey that back on the website, it will mirror back some of the experience that we have in the showroom. Uh, if we don't, then we're just lining and sorting everything up and it's go click and sort and search for bedrooms. Well, we don't line all our bedrooms up in the showroom. That over-commoditizes the product. And, uh, and that's where we start to have some departures. So that's just a little example of yeah. how that education and that merchandising background is so key for us in trying to hit the right message to the customer. Speaking of the right message then, like, you know, because City is everything for everyone, right? If we were to go, like restoration hardware um, is uh, like, there's a certain type of customer that buys mm -hmm. their product um, and they have a certain household income, et cetera. So their persona development exercise is a little bit different than for someone like City, uh, because it's anything from affordable to luxury in terms of right. price points. Walk us through how internally you guys are thinking about persona developments, reaching the right people at the right time with the right message without diluting the message, without coming off as like cheap furniture or expensive furniture, but like finding a nice balance. So the difficult thing that we have gone through uh, with some of that is, you know, look at stores that are generalist like Macy's. You know, they, they really start to struggle over time because somebody's always going to outcompete you in that one small little niche. Yeah. So that's what we get afraid of. We get afraid of people just picking off our business and it's death of a thousand cuts. So, um, you know, when we are looking at, hey, how do I build a business that's sustainable and that is going to do um, a good job of uh, conveying that, we realize that maybe personas for us is not the right way to segment that. 
because you know, let's say uh, you have a wealthy guy uh, and, and his wife, and they come in and they want to buy Tempur-Pedic. Tempur-Pedic is expensive; it's a premium brand, um, and that's what they want for their master bedroom. But they have a guest bedroom, and they don't want to spend three thousand dollars on that bed. They they want to go back and buy a two hundred dollar bed for the guest bedroom because nobody ever uses it. So even people who are luxury buyers don't always want luxury. So we stopped trying to say, hey, we're going to divide you up into this pre-cookie cutter segment that this is the only thing you want. And then we yeah. instead said, let's look at the journey that you're on. So we don't look at it, and we really kind of started with this previously and said, oh, we have the furniture fashionista, and she's 28, and she likes to buy these things. And then we have the older couple, and you know they're in their 50s, and they're empty nesters, and they like to buy this. Now we look at it and say, you're a new mover. You just moved. What do you need? You know, and how do we capture you in that journey? And at what percentage of our sales are coming from people that are new movers? You're, you're a couple that just got married. You're newlyweds. You're, you're some that just had a baby. You know, you're adding a member into your household. You're folks that are empty nesters that have now downsized from a bigger house to a small house. So we then look at it by journey instead. And then we try to say, what are the commonalities of folks who are going through those journeys? How can I market to them along the way? And develop marketing programs that get those folks in the door earlier and then match them up with people who have experienced going through their journey. So the sales associate has taken people through, you know, if I'm a sales associate at City Furniture, I've probably, I don't know, taken hundreds of customers through furnishing a new home. Well, now I can add value to that. If I've identified that that's what you need, I can incentivize that. Do you need design services or do you want to do it yourself? And you need to have this kind of range. So we really have tried to shift our perspective to look at it from that standpoint, because I can't do much with the 28 year old fashionista other than, all right, we're going to put a, this is an ad on this is us and hope that she comes in. Like, I, I don't know that, that there's as much as I can do where if you said, Hey, new movers, what can you do, James? Well, I, I'm going upstream to the lenders and seeing if I can uh, get gift cards in their hands to feed into their clients. I'm going to the movers and the moving companies and seeing what I can do to try to get upstream and grab their folks. I'm going to realtors and seeing if we can get involved in, e-staging and other things to do when you catch people earlier in the funnel. So now I actually can fish in those ponds because there's related industries that are supporting us. And, uh, and that's really the, the way that we are starting to think about marketing. I love that. So it's really bringing, kind of creating the perfect Venn diagram between merchandising and marketing, right? Um, let's talk a little bit about media mix, right? Meeting the right people at the right time with the right message. Um, you know, you guys are about to enter your strategic planning kind of season, uh, planning out 2021 and beyond. Like, talk to us a little bit about um, how you think about channel breakdowns and things of that sort. What is, how do you, how do you ruthlessly prioritize, say, TV versus digital, recognizing the impact of retail versus e-com? Sure. So what we've tried to do is make a universal language to commonize um, across our different channels. And um, that can be a little bit difficult, but we try to break it down into three interest buckets, or three buckets, really. So the first one is awareness. So uh, I want to drive awareness. Then the next one is interest. And then the last one is conversion. So if you just kind of keep that thought in your head, uh, we look and say, what, what level of awareness do we need to be able to then generate interest, knowing that only certain amount of people who are aware of you are going to trickle down into your stores. So we all, it all starts with awareness for us. So we'll measure our uh, branded, our unaided brand awareness, and we'll measure our aided brand awareness. 
and we'll divide that up in the markets that we're in and we'll try to drive that up to a sufficient uh, area. So if I'm in um, the market of uh, Orlando that we just entered and there's 4.5 million adults in the DMA and if I look at my demographic and there's 1.8 million um, folks in my demographic, well, how many of those are aware of us? Well, our brand awareness in, in Orlando may have been five or 10% when we just entered. And um, in South Florida, it could be four times that. Okay, so I know that I have an awareness gap. So in order to drive up that awareness gap, I'm going to need to use and deploy more of my spend in uh, channels that are efficient at driving awareness. And I'll go into my channels that I have a known variable or, or, or a, a good chance of, of driving awareness and indicate TV and say, what are my CPMs in order to reach and to drive awareness to hit that goal? So I can come back and say, all right, using surveys, uh, I know that if I hit this level of reach and frequency, it will drive this many points of awareness. And then we'll make investments based on that. So we'll start everything with awareness. Then once we have awareness kind of covered, we will start to go into interest. So we'll look at uh, store visits and clicks, uh, website visits. And then we'll look at our channels and say, well, which ones are more effective or efficient at a cost per store visit or a um, uh, or, or cost per traffic uh, or, or, uh, or cost per click. And uh, then we'll start to divide and mix that up that way. And then we go lastly into conversion. So I know um, I'll kind of pause for some questions on that, but that's really how we'll, we'll kind of go one bucket to the next, depending on how, far, uh, how much our penetration is in the market and what we believe our market share is and what the market share potential could be. Yeah, love it. Brian, any questions on that? I, I want to get into measurement and attribution in a second, but I'd love to pass you the mic. I'm, uh, I'm familiar with me and James have had many of these conversations. So, yeah. uh, you know, not for the, the viewer's purpose, but I think, you know, waterfalling is kind of what he's describing. We start with closest to the target. You know, everyone's going to need furniture. These are at a certain cost. We can reach this audience at a certain rate. Then there's trigger events like removers, like, you know, remodeling interest, like people who are, then there's GPS type. So there's different buckets of audiences based on behavior and relevance to category. And, and we're looking, how do we align those to get the best overall, you know, frequency to the audience for the cost? And I think James is very in tune with that and done a great job of kind of bifurcating those segments and then putting it all together. Um, and it's ultimately, I think you're, you're trying to reduce waste and you're also trying to create frequency to get to a certain positive saturation point without oversaturating. And so integrated marketing is about layering and making sure that those layers are working together into a point of marginal return and then you pull it back, just like economics class, right? So that at some point it's going up, 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 and then you've reached a point of marginal declining return. And at some point it becomes a negative return. And so the more channels you're using, the faster you can drive frequency without oversaturation. And the model is really built around that. When you talk about media mix modeling, to me, it's how do these channels work together as a system? You know, how do all the organs work together as a body to have a healthy person? And, you know, what focus areas should do what and how do they work towards each other? And so what channels drive each other? Or how do they work, you know, synergistically and create that halo? And, and what is the right amount, um, you know, of, of different channels to create the ultimate best return? And so it's a, it's a moving, breathing thing that changes. COVID, for example, the behavior change shifts the model, right? And so everything shifts with it. And it's a fluid, breathing process. And I think James and City are thinking about the right way. And it's, it's an ever, ever growing process. And it's, it's, a never, um, it's a never set still. You know, you never say, here's our media mix. This is what our model is. This is what we do. It doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't work that way. The market changes. Screens change. When you think about 12 years ago, since we referenced that earlier, how many screens you had in your life? You know, think about how many screens you have now. 
I mean, it's not even close. I mean, smartphones came out in like what, like the early 2000s, you know? It's like, I remember it was the Samsung Blade or whatever it was, you know, <laughs> it had like a, you could yeah. go on the web on the thing, you know, it was like one step above Snake, um, you know, in the, in the Nokias. So think about how much has changed and in information we're carrying supercomputers in our pockets. Like it's just a totally different world. So as the world changes, as the market changes, media mix has to continually be tested, vetted, and adjusted. Hundred um, percent. You I'm know, media mix model freak. So you talk about this all day long. Yeah. Speaking of uh, you know, kind of everything working in an orchestra like a body. What are the vital signs of that? Right. So we know that uh, percentage of revenue uh, goes into marketing, kind of measure backwards with the PNL. But James, when you were thinking about uh, playing offense. And you have this 2040 vision for carbon neutrality, et cetera, et cetera. On a on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis, what how does your reporting in your head work? What are the vital signs that you're looking at that it's working or it's not working? So the first thing we really look at is market share. And market share for us, we look at annually and then we break that down into um, uh, into quarter. So uh, we're going to look around and say, hey, well, what's the market share that we have in, you know, in home base, right, where, where we have our, our highest penetration, where people have known us the longest and say, do we think that we can get that market share elsewhere? And what's the market share that we can take when we go on the road? And, um, and what is the level of uh, marketing investment to get that market share? So for us, it really starts with market share. And then once I go to the next step on market share, uh, I want to look at brand awareness because I want to understand, you know, if everybody's already aware of me, then maybe my comp- my offering is just not as compelling. And that's why I'm not growing in market share. If nobody's aware of me, but I have pretty high conversion, well, then I, I definitely can spend more and it can be a marketing solution uh, into getting some folks in there. Uh, a marketing solution meaning spend versus a messaging solution. Uh, and changing uh, what we're doing in there. And it could be a a physical investment thing. Our stores are in the wrong place or whatnot. So we start with market share. Then we go into brand awareness. Then we go into traffic, both uh, email, or um, I'm sorry, web traffic and store traffic. And then we look at our conversion rate of the folks that are coming in. You know, how many are we closing on the sales floor? And and, and then what does that look like? So we do measure uh, ultimately, um, this might get a little bit too much into the merchandising weeds, but uh, our showrooms and the efficiencies of our showroom are measured on a revenue per square foot basis. And um, each showroom does not have the same assortment. They all have different assortments. Mm. Uh, we like to localize all of our assortments and instead of doing a push-based merchandising system, we call it a pull-based system. The customer, because our showrooms are divided into 11 different areas and 11 different styles, and um, if one style has more sales, it's going to have a higher revenue per square foot. So then we were going to expand it with more space. So the customer is voting with their dollars that I want to see more contemporary product or I want to see more postal product. So we can do, uh, so the merchants will take that and slice that away to try to increase it. And then they'll look back and say, is my conversion growing? Am I getting more folks there? Am I adding more revenue per square foot? Now the key of why revenue per square foot is so important is because, you know, depending on what our occupancy costs are for that parcel of land, uh, that's going to uh, generate what our profit is from that showroom. So, so that's kind of the way it all works through for us. So uh, that's a little bit of a blend of looking at it from the marketer, um, but ultimately it goes back to the business owner, Keith, um, saying, okay, well, well, you know, what am I going to generate from this physical uh, store investment and these physical and these uh, marketing dollars in there? Got it. So when you're looking at the vital signs of the business, is it safe to assume that you're looking at retail 
in somewhat of a vacuum and dot com ecom in its own kind of bucket or do you have a holistic view yeah i look at everything all together and then we'll start to break it down into into different silos so for example you know our, our web business has been growing like crazy and particularly this year even if you take out COVID, of course it's our fastest growing showroom year over year for the last several years so we know that that's a, a reflection of um uh, uh different behaviors um, that's going on there. We can break down our, our e-com sales to understand, well, which showrooms are, you know, really driving that more. And there's a little bit of a combination between um, how the two of them work together. But uh, lately, what we've started to say is um, we're going to look at the, the whole, then I'm going to sum down into the parts, and then I'm going to give prescriptions for the individual, you know, components. So uh, we believe we can really grow our web business very well, just like I believe we can grow our new store in Orlando very well. But they might have different uh, prescriptions uh, given to them in order to accelerate that growth. So we are starting to now say, all right, here's my base plan. Here's what I need to do to be successful. Then here's the opportunity spend that we can put into digital to grow it even further. Um, and we would look at that like uh, on a digital just as we would on any um, uh, interesting market or interesting opportunity we have where we say, hey, we think there's a good return on investment here and we need to make further investment. Yeah. Uh, James, coming into this this conversation, I surveyed a few e-commerce kind of uh, entrepreneurs. You know, these are businesses that are doing 30, 40, 50 million dollars in, in revenue on their direct, on their dot com. And they they recognize that DTC is no, DTC is no longer a strategy, it's a distribution uh, platform. Um, and they want to aggressively tap into retail. What advice would you have for those um, owners um, as they're exploring opening up retail, especially amidst everything going on right now? Yeah, you know, it, 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 I would say that my experience probably only translates somewhat to similar type industries. I, I couldn't begin to tell a clothing uh, retailer how to make a, a retail investment. But what I could say is that it all comes down to um, you know, the compelling presentation that you can offer in a store. Uh, you know, the, it, don't do it if you're just going to open up the simple box and, and throw everything forward. You really need to make sure that your, uh, your lineup's well differentiated, your experience is top notch, and that your real estate selection is good. I can tell you that we have made um, some really good strategic plays because we're, we're, we're pretty strong on the real estate standpoint and where we pick right markets, where we pick wrong places in the right markets. And uh, that can make a huge difference on the, on the physical footprint there. So sometimes more expensive is expensive for a reason. And um, I find that the, uh, the prime properties that we have seen at least have, uh, have delivered uh, really strong returns for us. So, um, you know, for, for our space, uh, it's evolving. A lot of folks in uh, 35, 40,000 foot boxes are, are falling away. And uh, in the markets of South Florida, where there is a lot of traffic, people are willing to drive a little bit further for a purchase like furniture, where you're not making a furniture purchase every week, you're making it every couple of years. So we might have a little bit of a different um, uh, point of view on that, but that's what we're seeing. For sure, for sure. Um, I know we're coming up on time. I have uh, one more thing I want to get into is you personally, you have so much happening in the business between merchandising, marketing, retail, even personally family. How, how do you manage your time? I mean, talk to us a little bit about managing everything together and, and, uh, and ensuring that you're playing offense and not just defense. Sure, so, uh, you know, I'm not a naturally organized person. I'm, uh, my attention span is generally not there. I like interesting ideas and I instantly go to start to work on them. So discipline is not an easy thing for me. 
Um, but uh, going back to like something you said in the beginning of companies that do better that have a system that you can lean into the system. Well, we've been provided with really good infrastructure here. So because we follow a, uh, a management system uh, that's based kind of off of Toyota, we have something we call leader standard work. So I have a big Excel document that has uh, everything that I do, every minute, every trade show I go to, every recurring weekly, monthly, quarterly meeting, all the document compared back to the hours that I work per week. And um, I know how much of my time is allocated and how much is available to problem solve. So, you know, I work about a, a 50, 55 hour work week. We don't, uh, you know, our bosses don't kill us over here. And um, I know that I am 65% allocated to structured work. And then I have the rest of the time free for problem solve. Then from there, if you were to look in my uh, Outlook calendar, it, there's not a free space. We don't uh, kind of allow that in our company because, you know, you need to plan your time accordingly. You need to have a plan. You know, we're not always going to achieve our plan every single day, but you have to have that plan there. So if I walk into my calendar, it's blocked, filled up. Even if that's uh, I wanted two hours for myself to do some strategic thinking, that sits there on the calendar. And if, if you put that work into really planning ahead, then you know you don't get whipped around by the firefighting and the problem solving as much because you can stay committed. Just commit to the day. The plan you have to the day, commit to that. Get through that, and then you'll get through to the next day. And that's really helped me stay on top of, of what I, whatever I need. And it makes me more accessible to my team because they know they can go to my calendar and then just put something on there and that I'm going to show up as long as it's on my calendar. So that's really helped me um, kind of manage through. And, and we have a pretty good work-life balance over here as well because, um, you know, I kind of I, I follow that same type of thing. And we're not putting in 100-hour work weeks or doing any of that or getting whipped around by the business. We're actually thoughtfully planning ahead on what we're doing. And, and we have periods of time where we come back and say, hey, no, I'm gonna be exceptionally busy during this time. So I'm not going to get some of the strategic work that I wanted done. So I know that my season to do that is maybe at a different time of the year. So um, really that, that extra planning ahead has helped us become more effective as a company. And it really doesn't work if you just have one person doing that. The entire company has to be doing that. So my whole leadership team, everybody, if you go into all their calendars, their Outlook calendars, and all, they're all gonna have leader standard work all the way up to our CEO. He does, he has his leader standard work document as well, and he's got everything that he's doing. So that's been our big kind of secret sauce to um, dealing with um, uh, issues of time management and prioritization. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, they say, you know, if it's not on the calendar, then it doesn't exist. Um, and have you, um, have you read The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker? I have not. Man, okay. So that book is gonna be a gift from Brian and I to you. Um, <laughs> Uh, Peter Drucker is obviously one of the greatest management gurus and thought leaders we, we know. Um, and he really gets into this idea of like uh, everyone in a company is an ex executive, right? Because the whole idea of an executive is to execute, right? Um, and so you have to be able to plan what you want to do. You will have to be able to do it. You have to then be able to measure it. And I think where people miss the ball is either they don't know how to plan and they're just doing for the sake of doing. And I always say, don't get on the hamster wheel right? Like, don't do that because then it's a vicious cycle and you're going to burn out. Um, so you want to plan, you want <clears throat> to do, you want to measure so that you can manage, right? If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Um, and same gets applied to the work that you guys are doing across the entire organization. So um, that, that book's going to come as a gift to you. Um, you will love it. It's, it's one of the most impactful books I think I've read in the last couple of years when it comes to just this idea of management. 
Uh, a lot of it will just resonate with you. You're going to be like, yeah, of course, like, yeah, I do this already. Um, but, you know, there will be just nuggets in there that just validate the thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Brian, any, any thoughts or questions on your end? No, I think this was great. Uh, we could probably go on all day. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, there's some really good takeaways for, for everyone listening and watching in on this and, and, um, you know, just, uh, makes me more excited to keep tackling these plans. And, and, uh, I, my takeaway is we have to plan further than five years ahead. Um, uh, which, you know, we obviously plan to be a successful business more than five years, but we're always looking at, you know, 12, 24, five year kind of plans. And so I'm inspired to, uh, think about a decade from now and two decades from now. I'm so fired up, dude. It's crazy. Like, James, I feel like every time we somehow connect, I'm just like, damn, like, all right, Ryan, oh, what's the plan? Let's do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's amazing. Um, and that's what they say, man. You know, the best people in the world are, they have this energy around them that, that, that you know, extends into their friends and family and, and their community and beyond. So um, keep on keeping on. Um, James, really appreciate you jumping on, man. I know you're, you're incredibly busy, so appreciate you making the time for us. Um, and I know that um, when this when this podcast goes live, we're going to be getting text messages saying, "Why wasn't James the first person you interviewed?" Because this is what we needed uh, when COVID hit. So really appreciate you jumping on, man. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Yeah, we'll talk soon. Thanks, guys. Bye.